This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley. Now, do you speak Russian? The Foreign Office probably could do with your help. Uh, We've revealed on the programme that uh, in the last few years, the number of fluent Russian speakers in the Foreign Office has fallen by more than a quarter. Uh, So we're going to take a look at what this means for Britain's ability to engage with Russia in the run-up to uh, the invasion of Ukraine, particularly there were warnings after the annexation of Crimea about the decline in uh, language uh, abilities in the Foreign Office. So that's coming up in our big thing in just a moment. First, though, it's our columnist panel. No Finkelvich today because David Aronovich is off having a spa break or something. So instead, we've got Daniel Finkelstein and Oliver Cam. That, does this make us the penultimate portmanteau? Of the <laughs> what is it? Is it Finkel, Finkel Cam? Finkam? Camelvich? Uh, Camelvich? Camel, camel, camel. There's definitely something involving camels. Um, uh, let's talk about um, uh, Ukraine. And this, this suggestion that Britain's concerned that France and Germany will offer President Putin an easy off-ramp. And, you know, there's a sort of concern that Putin then might get away with it. Uh, Danny, get, one person's getting away with it as another person's ending the war, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very, very difficult question. I'd be fascinated to know what Oliver has to say. On the one hand, it, you know, Boris Johnson made the right point earlier in this when he said Putin cannot be seen to win out of this kind of aggression. And when you, um, you know, you fight as we do, um, it is to try to prevent this kind of aggression from seeing to gain anybody anything um on the other hand you've got to be able to end it at some point so a lot depends on what we regard our capacity uh to to see this out and most important of all this is about the ukrainian people and what they decide they are willing to accept uh and uh, you know, the most important thing is that we should support them in their resistance to conditions they're not willing to accept. So uh, it, it isn't as easy as it sounds initially. Initially, it sounds obvious that uh, President Putin has been involved in war crimes, that he has to be uh, defeated. All of us want 
him not to be uh, the president of Russia anymore. Um, but, you know, one has to also temper that kind of uh, demand with a degree of realism, but not let one's realism bleed over into defeatism or to accepting things that one uh, shouldn't accept. So an awful lot of this is down to the conditions on the ground, to how the Ukrainian people feel about it, to what we think um, Putin's both his breaking point and his stopping point are. Uh, so um, I apologise if that's not a def- you know if that's not a very conclusive answer, but I think it's actually very messy choice this. But that, that, that that's the problem, isn't it, Oliver? Is that we people like, and particularly in this day and age with the world of social media, and they like certainty and and uh, taking a position, a hard line position, and that's the position we take. And actually, what Danny's just spelled out there, the idealism, realism defeatism and trying to find a sort of a place on that scale that muddy scale where ending the war has to probably be the overwhelming priority and therefore that's going to mean dirty horrible compromise probably yes there are never cases never cases even in just wars like the second world war where there are clear-cut moral choices you need to be prepared to do Uh, bad things in order to prevent worse things. And as Danny rightly says, the conditions on the ground actually matter. But let me stress the conditions on the ground. What has happened in this war that has now been going on for nearly four weeks is that it has persisted much, much longer than the Putin regime uh, expected. And all the signs are that they are sustaining, the Russian forces are sustaining tremendous losses. Um, The fatalities uh, reportedly between seven and 14,000. Um, the Putin regime has had success militarily in its aggression before, in the case of Georgia, in the case of annexing Crimea. Um, but these are with special forces, with regular forces. They are encountering tremendous resistance, stiff resistance, and responding with brutality against civilian targets. Um, as Danny so rightly says, it comes down to what the Ukrainians actually want in this conflict, and they are fighting bravely. And our role, that is the Western democracy's role in this conflict, is not to uh, be disinterested. It is to support the legitimate government in Kiev and to supply, and this is making a difference, the most advanced anti-tank, anti-aircraft and anti-ship weapons and impose um, stringent sanctions on the Russian economy. This is having an effect. Now, President Putin is a very, uh, uh, a very um, uh, brutal man, um, but he's not shy about saying what he wants. When he wants to come to the negotiating table, he will, and it is not the role of the Western democracies to negotiate behind the backs of the legitimate government of Ukraine. My only um, caution in the position of our own government in this is that it should not be sowing dissension among uh, our partners in Europe. Um, It should be um, cohering with um, the European Union, which has been very creditable and very prompt in its imposition of sanctions against the uh, autocracy in the Kremlin. I agree with that. And, and, but, and let me just add to that. You know, we, ha- we have to look forward at the moment. One of the things that's obvious is that we thought that their peace in Europe uh, was something that we could rely on. And now we appreciate, as possibly we should have done after Bosnia, but we didn't, um, that we can't rely on it. And um, what we've also learned is that we can't entirely rely on the United States to share that view. It does at the moment uh, because of its presidency, but it won't necessarily have that um kind of approach consistently uh so we must we're going to have to uh 
develop a European defence uh, alliance and identity, um, you know, taking into account the fact that we've left the European Union, but uh, still left ourselves with that challenge. And I, I suppose as well, because we've obviously supported with sanctions and with military, but we're not fighting this war. And so this is Ukraine's war. And it's all very nice people telling President Zelensky what he should and shouldn't be doing. But it's up to him. Because, we, you know, they're not members of NATO. We're not all important in the same way. So if he thinks he's doing the right thing for the people of Ukraine, it's not really anything to do with us, is it, Oliver? Uh, it is to do with us when he calls upon us for support. The idea which President Zelensky has repeatedly um, urged um, on his allies of uh, a no-fly zone um, imposed by NATO is... Um, you can see why he does it. Um, it is to impress upon us, upon the NATO powers, the stakes involved. And he's right to do so. But there again, we are right not to accede to it because it would escalate the conflict beyond the borders of Ukraine. This is one of the messy choices that we have to make in a just war against brutal imperialist aggression. And what about, um, Danny, I mean, to some extent, were them to uh, Ukraine and Russia to find some sort of messy compromise and that still seems like some way off but then you never know it could also happen quite quickly <laughs> the the way that the international community has actually responded to this is someone just tweeted in saying maintain the sanctions you know were the sanctions to be maintained uh, the the way that the West has united and responded to Putin in a way that they just haven't for the last 10-20 years that's already a you know, he, Putin is already in a worse place than he was when he started this. Yes, he definitely is. Look, he's made a, um, a miscalculation. Uh, he's definitely made a moral miscalculation. And I think he's made a practical and political miscalculation too. Uh, and we'll see how that's going to play out. You know, actually, in some ways, um, for all the moral complexities, um, we, we do have a simple uh, duty, and Oliver's laid it out quite well, it is to support the uh, decisions made by the people of Ukraine, because, uh, as you know, as uh, uh, represented to us by their by their elected uh, officials, uh, and to uh, to support that decision uh, while they continue to make it, uh, and to involve ourselves in supporting any security efforts after they've secured peace on whatever basis they regard as acceptable. Um, you know, it, the most morally, I found this, I don't, I, I'm sure all listeners have as well, I found it immensely difficult to be saying to the Ukrainian people, you're incredibly brave, um, we're watching everything that you do, we want to provide you with weapons, we want to provide you with money, we want to provide you with homes, um, if we can, many of us. And uh, at the same time, um, to tell them we can't enter this war ourselves. It is, unfortunately, the only thing that uh, that we can do. It's the only thing you can prudently do. It's morally very tough. I found it very tough. Um, so uh, all I can really cling to is to try to support them in whatever ways that we can, uh, to the absolute limit that we can, um, for as long as they decide they want it. That, that's the crucial point, the absolute limit. You hear a lot in... Um rather distant political debate over the Ukraine war about providing President Putin with an off-ramp, that is, an opportunity to climb down. This is President Putin. 
he will climb down when he's beaten, and our moral obligation as democratic powers is to provide the legitimate government in Ukraine with the tools to do that. They are fighting with extraordinary bravery uh, against a, an adversary that has no compunction about bombing hospitals, about bombing civilian areas. Um, we should be stepping up all the military aid that we can increase the sanctions, not loosen them, and provide um, boundless welcome uh, and support for, um, for those fleeing the conflict. Well, this this whole area is a is a it's a sort of complicated moral uh, minefield and thing. You know, compromise happens, and sometimes reality makes things uh, complicated. Another area where ex- lots of the same things apply is how do you get hostages out of countries? And obviously, we heard for actually. Well, listen to this: Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe uh, talking yesterday in the House of Commons and questioning why it took six years and five foreign secretaries to free her. I have seen five foreign secretaries changed over the course of six years. That is unprecedented given the politics of the UK. I love you, Richard. Respect whatever you believe. But I was told many, many times that, oh, we're going to get you home. That never happened. So there was a time that I felt like, do you know what? I'm like, no, I'm not even going to trust you because I've been told many, many times that I'm going to be taken home. But that never happened. I mean, how many foreign secretaries does it take for someone to come out? Five. It should have been one of them eventually. So now here we are. What's happened now should have happened six years ago. So that was Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe speaking in the House of Commons yesterday. Today, one of those foreign secretaries, Jeremy Hunt, has said that those criticising Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe have got it so wrong. She doesn't owe us gratitude. We owe an explanation. She's absolutely right. It took too long to bring her home. He said on Twitter, I tried my best, as, as did other foreign secretaries, but if trying our best took six years, then we must be honest and say the problem should have been solved earlier. He says ministerial turnover may have been a factor. Uh, there might have been some uh, so much initial reluctance to pay the debt. This is the, the debt owed to Iran because people would, it would look like a ransom. But he's also backed the idea of an independent investigation to look into those uh, those failings. Um, it's quite, it's always interesting when someone calls for an independent investigation into themselves, Oliver. Um, what do you think is the correct response to this? Because clearly it did take an incredible long time. But there, were, there are moral questions, legal questions. Um, you know, there's cock-up and conspiracy and both, both probably play a part in it too. Yes, it was a, um, an immensely powerful um, statement by Mrs. Zagari Ratcliffe. Um, she has every reason to be angered by the length of time that it took to release her and that it took to secure that. Um, there, I, I, I respect the position of Jeremy Hunt. I think that's a very intellectually honest call for him to make. And uh, without anticipating the conclusions of any such inquiry, it, it clearly did not help Mrs. Agari Ratcliffe whatsoever that Boris Johnson, as Foreign Secretary in 2017, um, made a gaffe with tremendous implications uh, depicting her as having um, trained journalists in Iran. Um, it, it, it was a culpable lack of knowledge of his own brief that had disastrous consequences. And that's something that, uh, that, that, that really needs to be uh, atoned for, never mind investigated. I would say this for the British government's position, however. Um, Hostage-taking by Iran is a long-standing problem. Um, it hasn't been confined to um, uh, dual nationals like Mrs. Zagari Ratcliffe. There was the uh, Australian academic um, Kylie Gilbert Moore, uh, who was released the other day. 
and it happens to um, maritime traffic as well. There was a South Korean ship just in January that was impounded um, in the Strait of Hormuz by um, Iran, and uh, the South Korean government paid reportedly anywhere between a billion dollars and seven billion dollars in frozen Iranian assets. Um, there is a problem. Of course, the, the, the debt should have been paid by the British government a long time ago relating to the Shah of Iran's um, order for um, chieftain tanks back in 1979, shortly before he was deposed. But the um, theocracy in Iran is not like Denmark. It's not like Norway. It's not like Canada. It is a rogue regime that does use um, funds for uh, exporting revolution um, and for illicit activities. And there is a moral compromise involved. It's one that the Obama administration faced up to in 2017 in a similar case when Iran made a claim of $1.7 billion for, <coughs> uh, for funds that um, the Shah of Iran had deposited in the United States in order to purchase military hardware. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and... If you pay a ransom, which is how this was perceived uh, in the case of the Obama administration, then it does confer both diplomatic advantage and material benefit to a regime that is exporting revolution throughout a highly dangerous region. And so there is a moral compromise involved. Um, Mrs. Agari Ratcliffe deserves enormous credit for her courage and her eloquence. Um, uh, she is not, I, I, I read uh, someone's comment, I forget who, um, she is not some Disney princess um, celebrating uh, the benefactors who've released her and all credit to her for that. But there is a problem that democratic governments have with a regime that uses hostage taking as an instrument of foreign policy. I agree. Let, let me let me say that I agree with lots of lots of things you've said, but not absolutely everything, Oliver. So one of the examples is that I completely agree with you that uh, Boris Johnson's comments were a catastrophically uh, catastrophic uh, failure of his duty as foreign secretary, um, and um, and culpable as well. Um, but I'm not clear that they necessarily had disastrous results. Um, he's not. He, if they did not have disastrous results, that was no thanks to him. Uh, but nevertheless, we can't be sure that they did because I actually, I'm not sure that their holding of her as hostage, as the ultimate solution suggested, had much to do ultimately with whether or not they thought she was culpable, they were guilty of anything. They knew she wasn't guilty of anything. And Boris Johnson saying that may or may not have changed the situation so one of the things that's certainly one of the things that should be inquired into it wouldn't excuse it uh, because it wouldn't have been any doing of his if it was uh, if it was if it had no impact but i wonder whether it really did um, and very important to keep at the front of our mind what you said at the end there which is um this ultimately isn't the fault of uh, the british government it's the fault of the iranian government um and um the uh while I think two things. One is um, you have to be immensely sort of emotionally uh, unintelligent, I think, to start to kind of quibble with the way that uh, that, that Mrs. Zagari Radcliffe feels about her own uh, experience. And you also have, you know, you also listen to that eloquence. You can see um, that she's somebody worth listening to in any regard. Uh, you can just hear that. Um, but at the same time, uh, it's not necessary to accept absolutely uh that because it took a long time that was necessarily a culpable error um i think Jer jeremy hunt's right to think we ought to look into it i'm completely open to the idea and very struck by the fact that he thinks it took uh longer than it should and i think that may well be the result of the inquiry yeah. 
But I don't think we should assume that at the beginning, because it may well be that um, actually there was little that we could sensibly have done earlier. On the other hand, you know, as she notes, in the end, we paid up the money and they let her go. Uh, so um, if we were going to do that at the end, why we not do it sooner? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the other thing, some people are getting very cross because we're even discussing the possibility that Boris Johnson may have played a role in it and made matters worse. I mean, the fact that Boris Johnson ended up apologising in the House of Commons, not something he's prone to doing, it has to be said, suggests that he at least thought it didn't help matters. Oliver Cam and Daniel Finkelstein, of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox. Up next, do you speak Russian? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. In this lesson, we are going to learn numbers in Russian. Yes, numbers. Chisla. From 1 to 10. Are you ready? Let's start. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Yeah, this is from six, Learn Russian in Three Minutes on YouTube. It's like there doesn't seem to be much used in the Foreign Office. This program has found that the number of fluent Russian speakers in the Foreign Office fell by a quarter in the years before the invasion of Ukraine. There were 83 fluent Russian speakers in 2017, but ministers have admitted this has fallen to under 60, according to the latest figures. The cuts come despite warnings about the lack of language experts in the wake of the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. Well, the Labour Party said in, the, in response to the latest revelation, it showed that Conservative ministers were asleep at the wheel. Well, the Foreign Office has faced a string of cuts and overstretched budgets under successive foreign secretaries, with critics warning it's adversely affected Britain's ability to monitor and engage with both allies and threats around the world. So let's go back to spring 2014. Russia invaded and annexed Crimea from Ukraine. A year later, the Foreign Affairs Select Committee used a major report to sound the alarm on the decline of language skills. Proficiency in Russian is seen as a weak spot, the report said. Among those it quoted back then was Sir Tony Brenton. He'd been the UK ambassador to Russia from 2004 to 2008. He told Parliament then there was quite a lot of complaints in Whitehall after the annexation of Crimea that the Foreign Office had not been able to give the sort of advice that was needed at the time. So, seven years on, I asked Sir Tony Brenton, is history repeating itself? Yeah, in a way it is. 
Um, although it's rather clearer this time around that this was entirely the wrong thing to do, at least as regards Russian. I mean, the Foreign Office, after 1991, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, went through a phase of two phases, of, of, it, two things. Firstly, it kind of assumed that bilateral diplomacy didn't matter very much anywhere anymore. Um, all the serious business was done in places like the UN and the EU and so on, where everyone spoke English. So there was a deprioritization of, of language teaching in general. But secondly, of course, Russia was demoted from being the alien superpower to being, in the words I think of a head of MI6 at the time, a nuisance. And therefore, there was a particular deprioritization of not only language, but expertise in, in Russia in all senses. And I think various Foreign Office officials, or Chatham House in, in particular, said to various uh, House of Commons committees, this is a mistake. And it's now very clear that it was a mistake. Just explain from, from your perspective, why having people who's, who are fluent in Russian helps Britain's ability to what monitor what's going on, influence what's happening? Well, I mean, let me let me give a very clear recent example. Vladimir Putin and before him Yeltsin and before him Gorbachev have been going on for 30 years about um, how the expansion of NATO is seen by the Russian security establishment as a threat. And we have ignored them consistently. If we had had a bit more, and, and, you know, thinking about how policymaking is, is, is made, the presumption at the top has been Russia doesn't matter. Therefore, we don't take these concerns seriously. If you had had experts around who had been able to give context to what Putin and others were saying, who'd been able to point to, you know, you talk to more minor military figures, more minor think tank people, and you get an overall picture of the fact that this is not just Putin spouting off, this is a genuinely shared concern in Russia, then maybe you take it more seriously. We didn't, and we now we are now where we are. And is the does it work in the opposite direction as well? That if you have more Russian speakers engaging on behalf of Britain with every level of government, like you said, think tanks and so on as well, that you end up building a better relationship? Is it possible to build a better relationship rather than the sort of foreign secretary turning up for an afternoon, being humiliated by Sergei Lavrov and then and then clearing off again? Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely true too. If you know what the Russians care about and you've got things that can assist them with, with, with that, then obviously that helps to build up the relationship in, in ways which aren't central, don't get the headlines, but mean you earn the trust of, um, of, of Russian policymakers when it comes to something which, which is headline and which really does matter. And then so put this in the broader context, because nobody's suggesting that if there were a dozen more, 20, 30, 40 more Russian uh, speakers in the Foreign Office, that would have stopped the war happening. But it does speak to a broader problem with with cuts generally to the diplomatic service. That's right. I mean, the Labour government, the, towards the end of its time in, 19, in the 1990s, closed down what was actually rather a good foreign office language training school. And William Hague, God bless him, not that much later, spotted that this had left a gap and tried to recreate it. But the thing about budgetary cuts is that you're on a ratchet letting money go is much easier and much more irreversible than getting it back for particular concerns. I mean, let me give you an example from another uh, area of my experience. I'm also an Arabist, in addition to be a, being a Russianist, and was heavily involved in the Iraq debacle back at the beginning of the 21st century. And you'll have seen that Rod Lyne and other great men in their um, evidence to the great uh, examination of what went wrong in Iraq said again, again and again and again, that we didn't listen to our regional experts. They didn't have enough voice, there weren't enough of them, um, they weren't taken seriously by the political decision makers, and that led us a long way into the morass that we got into. 
that sort of expertise, as I say, it felt in 1991, after 1991, it didn't matter anymore. The international affairs was all about business, was all about doing multilateral deals. It isn't. It's about actually having um, understand mutual understanding and good relations with key players in the international scene. And if you don't know what they want, you don't know what their countries want, you can't relate to them in ways that they care about, then you lose the capacity to do that. And just where we are right now, is there any form of engagement that Britain could now have with Russia to try and bring this to an end? Does it have to take place through the UN, through NATO, or is it just a bilateral uh, question between Russia and Ukraine? Obviously, at the moment, we're trapped into a, a, a deeply oppositional political relationship, and there's not going to be a lot of mileage in Whitehall for finding nice things to do with the Russians. But as the Prime Minister has said, we're not at war with the Russian people, we're at war with the Russian regime. And that's a very important distinction to bear in mind, because when this war ends, however it does, we're going to be looking for ways to re-engage. And you look around for things that influential bodies in Russia can be helpful with. And by making friends there, you then extend your ability to to do sensible business with the Russian government. And again, let me give you an example. When I was ambassador, the Russians, for deeply obscure reasons, uh, decided that the British Council was was basically a bunch of spies and and threw them out. This was connected with the Litvinenko affair and all the rest of it. It was was completely balmy on their part. But I was very struck by the way that a lot of very senior Russian cultural figures heads of museums, heads of orchestras, those sorts of people, came along to me and said, this is a tragedy. We have fantastic relations with the British Council. We like them bringing in British musicians or or whatever. Um, We are are ashamed of what is going on here. And come the moment, we are very keen to rebuild those links. Now, the moment, as you've seen, all over the UK, we're throwing Russian music off concert programmes and all the rest of it and and cutting down on, on visits. The sooner we can begin to get over that and begin to resume those visits, you resume positive links with the Russian cultural scene. And in Russia, culture matters. People care. I mean, Valery Gergiev, now re- reviled as a friend of Putin, but I-, I got to know him quite well, was a very a very good ambassador between the UK and Russia on the cultural front and could occasionally whisper the odd word into Putin's ear about how Britain was doing this and that, which was helpful to Russia. That was Sir Tony Brenton. He was the UK ambassador to Russia in 2004 to 2008. Uh, as several people have pointed out, that was during at the time we had a Labour government. But all this, these cuts in the number of Russian speakers down by a quarter in the last few years obviously happened during the Conservative government. So let's now hear from uh, Lord Macdonald, Simon Macdonald, former Permanent Secretary at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office from 2015 to 2020. Morning, Simon. Morning, Matt. So we've just heard Tony's impression from the front line, if you like, as a diplomat. As a civil servant who ran the Foreign Office, is it a fair criticism that... Britain took the eye took the eye of the ball when it came to Russia. No, um, I think for three reasons, Matt. Um, first of all, as Tony and you have said, resources are limited, uh, so we have to make choices uh, within our limited envelope. Uh, and the Foreign Office budget has declined over very very many years. And we had to make the best of that. So the decisions we took were in that context. Uh, Second, um, the world has more problems than just Russia. And the strategic shift uh, in the last decade has been towards China. 
no matter what is happening now in Ukraine, and no matter that it is taking all our attention and everybody understands why, when we look further ahead, China, I think, still looms larger. So we need more uh, understanding of China uh, and more people who speak Chinese, and that has been ramped up in the last decade partly at uh, the cost of some of our Russia expertise, but we had to make a choice. The last thing, though, Matt... Oh, hang on, sorry, that that sounds like you did, although you say we didn't take our after ball, there was a deliberate choice to cut resources dedicated to Russia because of focusing on other parts of the world. Yeah, but we we had to do that. We had to do that. But my last point, relevant to this, Matt, is that our Russia expertise is still very good. Tony Brenton was part of that. Uh, We always send fluent Russian speakers to Moscow. Uh, No other Western European country does that. We always have people in the key jobs below the ambassador who are trained in Russian. Right now, Deb Bronnett is our ambassador. She's on her second posting to Russia. She was trained in Russian for her first posting. She did a master's in Russian. She is uh, absolutely part of that tradition. Right now, the key official in London dealing with this crisis, the political director in the Foreign Office, was previously both ambassador in Moscow and ambassador in Kiev. So we have real expertise where we need it. Um, as I mean, given the period you were there, you actually spanned three prime ministers, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson. Do you think that in that time, the Foreign Office was a bit unloved, unappreciated? I mean, it, certainly by the sound of it, under-resourced. Uh, All permanent secretaries will say that, Matt, but I will make that case especially passionately. Um, The big problem for the Foreign Office whilst Boris Johnson was Foreign Secretary was that uh, Theresa May had no relationship with her Foreign Secretary. Uh, Not to put too fine a point on it, she knowingly appointed a political enemy to be her Foreign Secretary. When that relationship is not functioning, then the Foreign Office finds it more difficult to do its work. Uh, The Foreign Secretary finds it more difficult to do his work, because when whatever meeting he goes to internationally, the people he's talking to are aware that the boss in number 10 doesn't have his back. Uh, So that was a, a choice made by the new Prime Minister. And I suppose that then feeds through into resource allocation, you know, if the then former Secretary Boris Johnson made the case, well, we need more money because we want to train more Russian speakers or whatever it might be. Uh, That's going to fall on deaf ears if ultimately the Prime Minister doesn't particularly (laughs) like the Foreign Secretary. That indeed can be the case. But in the end, Matt, the Foreign Office budget is one of the smallest of any department in Whitehall. The operational costs are between 700 and 800 million. Uh, Real money for you and me, but in in the terms of uh, Whitehall departments, relatively small. Um, so, uh, but the best insurance policy, I think, we have against uh, international crises as we're seeing now, that if the diplomacy doesn't work, then it's the military who are next in line. And that is very, very much more expensive. Um, and just you mentioned Boris Johnson, obviously, even the time you were there, we got through foreign secretaries at a fair uh, rate of knots. We heard Nazanin Zaghawi Ratcliffe yesterday referring to that there were five different foreign secretaries who dealt with her case when she was uh, in Iran. 
Um, what's been your, what is your assessment on that? Because uh, Jeremy Hunt, obviously another one of the foreign secretaries uh, during that period, has been quite honest this morning on a thread on Twitter. He said that actually maybe ministerial churn did play a part in it. Um, because every time a new person went, it came in, they went back to the beginning of the process of the considerations and that sort of thing. Just your assessment on on the, the uh, Zagari Ratcliffe case and, and why it took so long. And is there something to be learned from that? I agree that there is too much churn among senior British ministers. Um, really, looking back over the last 20 years, only prime ministers have stayed a long time in office, plus Gordon Brown as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, the average incumbency of cabinet ministers is between 18 months and two years. You can't seriously get to grips with any big job in that time. It is, I think, a structural weakness in the British political system that prime ministers uh, use a cabinet reshuffle to grab headlines, to uh, have what they hope is a refresh, uh, whereas in most other countries, uh, cabinet ministers appointed at the start of an administration expect to serve for the whole of that legislature. I was ambassador in Germany, and that was precisely the model. Uh, who started uh, with Angela Merkel at the beginning of one Bundestag, generally was still in office by the time of the next general election. It's a big, uh, it's a big difference in that. Um, uh, Simon, just finally, what do you think there was ever a moment when you were in the Foreign Office? where you thought Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe could have been released sooner? As she said herself, and it was an amazingly poised and impressive performance yesterday, um, the her story ebbed and flowed. There were moments when it did look hopeful. Uh, and until uh, last week, those hopeful moments receded. Uh, dealing with the Iranian regime is incredibly difficult because it is a regime in pieces and the pieces that we deal with as diplomats are not the pieces that call the shots. The IRGC does not engage with diplomats. The Supreme Leader does not engage with Western diplomats. Uh, and throughout, we were dealing with a particular difficult case because Nazarene Zaghari Radcliffe has Iranian nationality. And under the Vienna Conventions, um, uh, when you are in the country or in a country whose nationality you have, then you are subject to the laws of that country. Establishing our log locus was difficult throughout uh, because, formally speaking, uh, international law was on the side of the Iranians. Simon, it's really good to speak to you, and I appreciate it because we, we asked you to come on and talk about Russia, but then obviously there's, there's news happening as well. That's uh, Simon McDonald, Law McDonald, former permanent secretary of the Foreign Office from 2015 to 2020. We are discussing how the Foreign Office cut the number of fluent Russian speakers by a quarter in the years before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, despite warnings from a uh, House of Commons Select Committee of a shortage of Russian after Russia invaded, invaded um, annexed even, Crimea. We go back to 2018, Lord Ahmed of Wimbledon, a Foreign Office minister, insisted Russian is a priority language for the Foreign Office. He added that where required, staff took up to 14 months full-time language training to reach C1 operational level. That's the international standard to describe language ability. There were, he said, 83 who had reached C1 or above as of December 2017. However, in a, separate, in a new parliamentary answer, Lord Ahmed has said there are now under 60, some 83 to under 60. David Lammy, Labour's Shadow Foreign Secretary, told this programme 
This shows ministers were asleep at the wheel as the threat of Vladimir Putin's rogue regime grew. He said Labour would revitalise the Foreign Office after years of incompetent management by the Conservatives, which has left the UK less secure. The Foreign Office has defended the cuts, blaming in part the decision by some former Soviet countries to mandate using local languages other than Russian. A spokesman said, we are training fewer people in Russian at posts in formerly Russian-speaking countries because of a preference to use local languages instead. The number of people we train to speak Russian reflects departmental staffing needs. Although that is slightly different to what Simon MacDonald, the former Permanent Secretary of the Foreign Office, was just saying, uh, where he said it was a deliberate decision to refocus resources on China. Well, let's now speak to Emily Ferris, a research fellow in the International Security Studies Department at RUSI, the defence think tank specialising in Russian politics. Emily, how significant? I mean, it, it, it doesn't look very good that the Foreign Office was warned in 2015 that Russian uh, language skills were falling short of where they should have been. And since then, they've, they've cut the number of Russian speakers further. How significant is this, do you think, both in practical terms, but also what it tells us about the, the Foreign Office's focus on the threat posed by Russia? Hi, good morning. Um, well, um, it is pretty important. And I think I've always been a, a big proponent of, of arguing that, you know, having greater Russian speakers and a greater understanding of Russia um, is really the only way forward. So, I mean, the, the churn that was mentioned earlier, um, certainly moving around post uh, within the civil service makes it really difficult to amass that kind of institutional knowledge about Russia, as well as the language, um, you know, how Russia has acted in the past, what's typical for Russia, what's something new and what we can anticipate on the horizon. Um, but then you've got straightforward linguistic problems when things get lost in translation and you lose quite a lot of the nuances. So I'm sure you remember um, in 2009 when uh, Clinton was Secretary of State and she was meeting uh, Sergei Lavrov um, and they, they had that kind of reset button and it was mistranslated. And that was kind of, you know, uh, pointed to it at the time of a real lack of institutional linguistic expertise. Um, and that can kind of really impact the way in which negotiations go forward if you're starting from, from if, if the starting point is that we don't really understand each other. And, and then does it matter that you talk about the churn? I mean, Sergei Lavrov, one of the great survivors of uh, Russian politics, he's been the foreign minister for since 2004, uh, during which time we've had, what, five ambassadors? I mean, goodness knows how many uh, foreign secretaries. Um, and that sort of consistency and, and, and institutional knowledge gets lost as well as, you know, whether literally being able to speak the language. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's It's very important to know what's different for Russia, what's changing. Um, you know, long term strategic thinking on Russia takes a lot of time to build up. And if you're moving people around posts every couple of years, um, which is quite standard within the civil service, then it's really difficult to get a handle on what the job is. Um, and when you're when you're sitting down to negotiations with Russia, you know, just in diplomacy, some of the linguistic difficulties are really just not knowing what we're agreeing to. And it's often said that we're talking past Russia, they're talking past us, and we don't really know what we're talking about. Um, but trying to understand, you know, Putin, his mindset, the system that, that he's evolved within, not just kind of things like his personal psychology, um, but, but how he sees things as part of Russia's national interest and what that means to him and what that means for the war in Ukraine um, is really something that you can't do without using Russian. And I suppose that's the, 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 that's the, key, the key point of this. It doesn't sound like very many people, but, you know, every person probably counts and particularly building those relationships and the point that uh, Tony Brenton was making is that you don't know 
just how seriously to take Putin's you know threats at the top level if unless you're plugged into every part of Russian society as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very important. And, you know, obviously, for for security clearances purposes, it's I suppose it's rather difficult. But, you know, there is a huge value in having people who have been to Russia, and who know where these places are, um, who know what we're talking about. And I guess more to the point, what what Russia means when they say things. So especially when we're talking about I guess, quite Western words like NATO infrastructure or cybersecurity, often Russia will have to use loan words from English just on a, on a practical level. Um, and so when we're kind of sitting down to negotiating with Russia about, say, you know, uh, buffer zones and, um, you know, how much NATO infrastructure there is in places like the Baltic states and what neutrality means when we're talking about Ukraine, I think if we don't understand what the Russians understand by that, then how do we know what we are agreeing to? It's a really good point. And I really appreciate your time. That's Emily Ferris uh, from uh, RUSI, the uh, defence think tank who specialises in Russian politics. Uh, Lots of you got in touch about this, uh, the revelation by this programme, that the number of Russian speakers in the Foreign Office, fluent Russian speakers, trained to the C1 level operational level and international standard to describe language ability by the Home Office. 14 months of training. The number of fluent Russian speakers in the Foreign Office has fallen from 83 in 2017 to now under 60. Uh, As I explained, the Foreign Office insists that they have, uh, in part, is because uh, some former Soviet countries have mandated to use local languages instead, other than Russian. Although it was interesting hearing from uh, Simon MacDonald, the former Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office from 2015 to 2020, saying it was a deliberate shift to remove resources to focus on China. Uh, we also heard from Sir Tony Brenton, the UK's Ambassador to Russia in 2004-2008, saying that this was a mistake. Well, somebody else has just texted in saying, Matt, I was a UK student in Russia and I wanted to join the Foreign Office. I was told that as I'd spent time in Russia, I was unlikely to be placed in Russia. Instead, they taught non-linguists to speak basic Russian from scratch. You try and make uh, head and tail of that. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.